welcome to the Truth Ward Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have benefited from this podcast or any of Olin's books, we'd like to ask you to leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you purchase your books. Now, here's Olin. I've been doing a series on Philippians, and we're going to pick up, I think, right where you left off by last week. But let me ask you a couple of questions, maybe, as you're flipping there or opening your app. Um, if you're a Christian here tonight, do you ever struggle with the concept of growing as a Christian? And here's what I mean. Sometimes you may say, man, I mean, you just heard this. Uh, Kenzie, is that right, I think? Uh, share her testimony about growing as a Christian. You're like, man, it sounds like she's growing and making progress. I feel like a Christian. I feel like I'm not making much progress. And maybe you feel like, man, I'm working really hard, but I'm not seeing the kind of growth, the kind of fruit, the kind of progress that I want to see. Or others of you may say, yeah, I'm not seeing much progress, and I think another reason why is I'm not trying at all. Uh, I'm not putting any, any kind of effort. Or some of you may say, I'm putting in a lot of effort, but I feel like it's the kind of fake it till you make it effort. Externally, people probably look at my life and think, well, that guy's really growing, he's maturing. But internally... I feel pretty dry. I feel pretty dead. I still have a lot of questions. I might be doing the right things on the outside, but on the inside, I'm really questioning. Well, we're going to try to address some of those ideas tonight because I think Paul really addresses them in this little short passage. So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And we're really going to talk about the concept of sanctification. All right. Now, sanctification is not a word that actually shows up in this passage. But this is just kind of a big theological word that means the process that a Christian goes through from the instant that he or she trusts in Christ till the day they die and they see Jesus face to face of growing spiritually, of maturing in your conduct, of being conformed to the image of Christ, of more and more dying to sin, putting to death, putting off the old ways, and putting on the new ways so that your life more and more looks like the life of Christ. You love the things that Christ loves. You hate the things that He hates. And you do the things, you say the things, think the things, feel the things that He would say if He was here in your shoes. Now, it's a long, slow process. It's a painful process. It's a two-step forward, one-step back process. Oftentimes, it's messy and it's complicated, and yet it's real. So we're actually going to try to answer four questions tonight. All right, Who's really at work in sanctification? What's the attitude you ought to have in sanctification? What's the goal of sanctification? Then what's the result? All right, so Philippians chapter 2, and you can look up there on the board. And just listen along. Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now the passage right before this, he's been talking about how Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again, Christ ascended for our salvation. And he says, if you have your faith in Christ, therefore what you ought to be doing is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the idea. God's given you a gift. He's worked it into your heart. But it's up to you to bring it out into reality, into your life, to bring it into your conduct. You're supposed to accomplish it. You're supposed to bring it to a sense of fulfillment. You have to put in effort. You have to put in energy. Okay? Look at this phrase because this can wig a lot of people out. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. You don't work to earn your salvation. It's a free gift. But once you have that free gift, it's supposed to radically change every area of your life. Let's say uh, 
I'll try this. Anybody here engaged to be married? We got any of those people? All right. No, I didn't think so. I thought I might get a hand or something. Okay, I saw a couple people looking at each other. Maybe they're thinking about something. Uh, all right. We got anybody dating? Surely we have some people dating in here, okay, right? If somebody, all right, now I see some hands going up. So let's just imagine, all right, if I'll pick on Luke. Luke's already married. But let's like rewind three years. And let's say Luke's not married. But then he does get married to Kristen. And he was already living here, and she moves here, and he gets married, and they have the big ceremony, and you all go because y'all love Luke and Kristen, and y'all are excited for him. And then after the wedding ceremony, what if Luke changed not one absolute thing about his life? He didn't move. He didn't start living with Kristen. He didn't start sleeping in her apartment. He didn't really talk to her anymore or any less than he did. Nothing changed. You'd say, this is really weird. I mean, I guess technically you're married. You stood in front of the preacher and he said the thing and you signed the legal document and sent it off. But it's supposed to change your whole life, right? I mean, you're supposed to become one. You're supposed to be like best friends and live together and change every aspect of your life. And in the very same sense, guys, that's what's supposed to happen in salvation. Salvation is like spiritually marrying Christ. And there's this once and for all thing that happens. What happens is we call it justification, which is another big word that basically just means God declares you innocent in the cosmic courtroom of the universe. The gavel falls, not guilty. Free at last. Okay, But then there's supposed to be this long, painful process of slowly beginning to work all that out. Bringing it to bear in your life. Does that make sense? And you're supposed to be a big participant in that. Let me give you this illustration. If you didn't like the, the marriage illustration, you're like, that's too girly for you. All right, listen to this one. Maybe this one will help. All right. Imagine that you've been kidnapped. You went on spring break down to Mexico and some of the drug lords, they kidnapped you. And the first thing they did, you know, is they got your, they know your daddy's rich and they got you on FaceTime in front of your daddy and they shoot you in the kneecap. And they're like, if you don't give us a million dollars, daddy, you know, he's going to get his other kneecap blown off. All right. Maybe this illustration is a little more manly for you. But your daddy, he's like, man, I ain't paying a bunch of drug lords a ransom. So he hires some special forces guy that flies down to Mexico to rescue you. Now, you're, you're locked in the drug compound with a bullet in your knee. All right? The special forces guy flies down there, lands the helicopter, breaks in, gets you, helps you limp out to the helicopter, gets you in the helicopter, and flies you home. There was a beginning to the rescue operation, there was a middle part of the rescue operation, and there was an end to the rescue operation. The special forces guy did all of the beginning on his own. He flew the helicopter down there. He did all of the last part of the rescue operation on his own. He flew the helicopter home. But in the middle part, you had to kind of hop along. You had to help, right? He was helping you, but you had to limp along. Guys, that really is a great picture of how salvation works. Oftentimes when the Apostle Paul uses the word salvation, he doesn't just mean it of initial salvation, justification. He means it in a more holistic fashion. Justification, sanctification, and then glorification when we see Jesus face to face. So what he's saying is, hey, justification was instantaneous. It was all the work of God. It was a free gift. But this sanctification, you got to be involved. It's blood, sweat, and tears. All right? Let me go back to the marriage illustration for just a second. because the, And guys, this is just free marriage advice for some of you. Most of you are going to end up married one day. Hang on to this one. If you go into marriage thinking, you know what? I'm going to give 50% effort. I'm going to tell this from a male perspective because I've been a male my whole life. All right? So if you go in as the man saying, I'm going to give 50% effort in this marriage. And by golly, she better give 50% effort 
go ahead and hire the divorce lawyer and get a good prenup because it's not going to work. The only chance you have of having a good, happy marriage is this. If you go and say, I'm going to do 100% of the work. I'm going to put all of the burden, so to speak, on my back. And yet, I'm hoping that she also has the same mindset that she's going to work 100%. You know what? And then you'll probably have a good marriage. In a very same sense. In the sanctification process, you have to be 100% at work, and God is 100% at work. Okay? I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean, fear and trembling? It doesn't mean fear of God like God's going to hurt me. there's, There's an old Bible teacher named John Calvin who says there's two different kinds of fear. There's one kind of fear that causes hesitation, like I don't want to go close to God. There's another kind of fear that just causes humility. And that's what it's talking about here, that when you're dealing with God, there ought to be humility, awe, respect. Imagine if you had the best dad in the universe. And oh, by the way, your dad was also the president of the United States. And he was the greatest president we've ever had. Better than George Washington, Lincoln, all the other presidents. And you loved your dad. You adored your dad. You had a great relationship with your dad. But you, always realize, you also realize, like, my dad is the most powerful person on planet Earth. And he's doing a great job. Think about how you would interact with your dad. You would like him. You would enjoy him. You would admire him. But there would be a massive level of seriousness and respect for your father. Does that make sense? And guys... God is the president of the whole universe. And he actually is the best father, the most perfect father to all his people. And so, lots of love, lots of admiration, lots of joy, but lots of sobriety. Lots of seriousness, lots of humility when you're not with God. Okay? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then look at verse 13. For it is God, here's where we see God's part. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, again, did you hear Kenzie's testimony? Part of what she's saying is some of the worldly things I was doing before Christ, I do them now or I'm tempted to do them, whatever, and there's, there's no fulfillment. I don't enjoy them anymore. Part of what God does is he does a supernatural work in our heart that we can't do. He literally changes your spiritual taste buds. He changes the things that you like. He gives you new desires. And if you're a young Christian and you're like, I do have one or two of those old sins that I still just feel addicted to. You need to fight hard to try to kill those sins. But one of the best things that you can also do is start praying, Oh God, would you please change the desires of my heart? I mean, this is a prayer I pray for myself so many times. God, do the supernatural work in my heart that I can't do. And you can't make an excuse, Well, God hasn't changed my heart yet, so I guess I'll just go out and get hammered drunk again. All right? You you have to fight against the sin, but pray that God would change the desires of your heart and also give you the power and the energy to actually carry it out because that's part of what he promises to do. All right? So who is working in sanctification? God is working. Man is working. Second question. What's the right attitude that we ought to have? Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. And this is talking about your attitude. Everything that God calls you to do in the Bible, you ought to do it with a good attitude. You ought to do it and not be grumbling, which really speaks more to the inner kind of heart, questioning God's providence. Why did God set things up this way? Why did God put me in this hard situation? Why did God give me this teacher that's so mean and stupid and they can't teach the class and I'm failing? It's not my fault. It's the teacher's fault. It's all that kind of grumbling. And then it spills over into the outward complaining and disputing and arguing about everything. You know, guys... 
What this probably primarily has in mean in, in mind, not exclusively, is this arguing against God. Now, does, does it also factor into arguing against other people? Yes. But most of our arguing against other people typically starts in our mind first. How many of you have ever had the experience? I mean, let's just use the whole thing about a, a bad professor, right? Which I've had them. I'm sure you've had them. And you're like, I'm failing this class, but it's really not my fault. This teacher, I don't know why they hired this person. They can't teach well. Typically, how many times have you had a hypothetical conversation in your mind with that teacher? You've never confronted them face to face ever. But in your mind, you've told them off over and over again. Well, I'd tell her this and I'd say this. And if she said this, I'd respond like this. That's this inward grumbling that we often do. And I'll say this, guys. If you're mad at another human being because they've sinned against you, that might be righteous anger. But if you're mad at anybody on planet Earth for anything that's not sinful, that's sinful anger. And if you go deep enough in your heart, probably what you're going to find is you're not just mad at that individual in front of you. You're also mad at God. God, why did you set circumstances up? Where I had to be in this family. Or I had to have this roommate. I had to have this job. I had to have this co-op. Whatever it is. And there's just a complaining, griping spirit against God. Okay? And part of what God is saying here is, I don't want just outward conformity to the rules. I want inward conformity. I want you to trust me. I want you to submit to me. I want there to be a joy, even in obedience. So what's the right attitude? Don't complain, don't argue, especially against God. Third question, what's the goal? What's the real goal of sanctification? Look at the next couple of verses. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, or you could translate that, holding forth the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured, I may be, excuse me, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So he's saying, guys, you want to grow to a point, you're never going to be perfect in this life. The church that I go to in Birmingham, the pastor there used to have this phrase, he would say this, it's not about the perfection of your life, it is about the direction of your life. And your goal is, you're never going to be perfect in this life, but you want to get to a place where when other people look at your life, you're above reproach. You're not sinlessly perfect, but other people watching you say, they seem innocent, they seem blameless, because they seem like they're, they're doing the right stuff. Your life is supposed to look more and more like the life of Christ. And look, notice he says, the world around you, the sinful world culture, it's, it's broken, it's perverse, it's twisted. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's dark. And your life is supposed to be like a bright light Shining in a dark night. And the more Christians there are, there ought to be more stars lighting up the night. I know uh, on another, I know we got some Kappa Sig guys here, I think. Is that right? All right. Uh, I know another Kappa Sig chapter on another campus where last semester about six guys in the fraternity came to Christ. And about four of them made this pledge where they're like, hey, we're underage. We're not drinking anymore. We're not sleeping around. We're not chasing girls. Like, we're going to still do everything else we used to do, but we're just cutting out the party lifestyle. So they're going to all the parties, but they just don't drink, you know? And they're not like trying to hit on girls and take girls home. And people are starting to notice, and they're literally getting into gospel conversations at the frat party. While the music is thumping and everybody else is getting drunk, 
They're out there talking to people about Christ. And one of them actually led a girl to Christ at the frat party a couple weeks ago. I mean, when was the last time that happened, right? Sorority girl went to the frat house for the party and she becomes a Christian. This is a picture of what's supposed to be happening, guys. That in the middle of the black night, you don't run away. God's not calling you to be a monk. God's not calling you to be a nun. He's saying, no, live in the dark world. But live in the dark world blameless and pure and shine like light. Guys, and the idea of of pure, some translations use the word pure here. It just means unmixed. Again, it doesn't mean perfect. But it just means you're not double-minded. Okay? It doesn't mean that you're telling all the guys in your discipleship group, man, I'm never going to touch alcohol again. And then as soon as they leave, you like pull out a case of beer and, you know, start double fisting them. It, it's, it, you're honest. You're genuine. You might struggle, right? You might say, hey, I'm going to this party tonight and whatever happens, I don't want to go home with anybody. And then you make a terrible mistake. But, you, but you're honest about it. You're humble about it. You're making progress forward. That's the goal of sanctification. Conformity to Christ so that you can shine out and you can hold forth the word of life to other people. They can see it in your life and they can hear it in your voice. And guys, you know this better than I do, I bet. Whether it's you or somebody else. If there's somebody that talks a big game about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity and spirituality, but their life doesn't back it up, how much do you respect that person? I mean, that's probably the main reason people turn away from the church. Right? You, any of y'all got friends that are like, oh, I was, I'm a, I was hurt by the church growing up, so I never want to go again. Maybe you've invited them to a campus outreach meeting or something. Or you invited them to church with you. Like, no, I'm not doing that. And you ask them some questions. Why not, man? Why are you so weird, man? We live in freaking Mississippi. Everybody in Mississippi is supposed to go to church. Why don't you want to go to church? And they're like, well, I actually had a bad experience. You know? I had a pastor or something that cheated on his wife. I hate hypocrites. It's a turn off. Be genuine. Be yourself. I'm not saying you got to be perfect. When you screw up, just own it. Okay? But be a bright light shining for Christ. That's the goal. Fourth question. What's the result? What's the result? Look at the last two verses. Verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, back then, different religions, when they wanted to worship their God, they would kill some animal, they'd set it on fire, and then once the fire started, they'd take a glass of wine, and they'd dump a glass of wine onto the animal while it was burning. And the wine would basically just get vaporized and go up into smoke, and the idea was it was supposed to be like a pleasing aroma to the deity. And Paul is saying, he's in prison, he thinks he's probably, maybe, he doesn't know, maybe he's going to get released, maybe he's going to be executed. But he's like, hey... My whole life has been a sacrifice to Christ. You Philippian Christians, your life is a sacrifice to Christ. You know what? And if I do get my head chopped off tomorrow, that'll just kind of be like my last act of service. He's humble. It's like everything I do in life, everything I do in death, ultimately, what's it for? To please Christ. To honor Christ. And notice how it ends. And guys, remember, Paul was in a prison. He was probably likely chained to a Roman centurion. I mean, he didn't have much freedom. I've actually got a friend in prison right now. I've talked to him on the phone a couple of times. I've gone and seen him. Pretty sad, pretty dark. And when I'm talking to him, I primarily am spending my time trying to encourage him. Any of y'all ever, ever had that experience, go talk to somebody in prison? Paul's the one in prison. Paul's the one writing the letter. And it's like he's just busting at the seams with joy. 
Because he's doing the Lord's work even when he's in prison. He's like, I got a guard chained to me. I get to share the gospel with him, you know, 24 hours a day. God can't get away. Look at it again. The end of verse 17. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. He's just filled with joy and he's like, every Christian should be filled with joy. Even when your life's hard, even when you're sacrificing, even when you're suffering, you want to please the Lord. And if you do it, if this is the way you live, guys, you will have joy. Deeper than momentary happiness, deeper than momentary fleeting passing pleasures, joy. Now, last thought I want to leave you with. Because I don't know if you, any of y'all have thought this, but as I'm reading and studying this passage, kind of thinking about tonight, here's a question I ask. Because it almost makes it sound, right? No complaining, no arguing, joy, joy, joy. I'm joyful, you're joyful. It almost sounds a little bit too happy, happy, joy, joy. Like, life is hard sometimes. And is there no proper way to have negative emotions and express negative emotions that's not sinful? If you just read this passage out of context, you might start to think that. But you've got to interpret the scriptures in light of all the rest of the scriptures. And one of the things we know is Jesus Christ, the God-man, walked the earth and he never sinned. Not once. Not even a sinful thought. Not even a sinful feeling. And think about the worst night of his life. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he knows he's about to be arrested. And he knows he's going to go to the cross. And it's not really the physical torment that he's worried about. He realizes what's going to happen is he's going to be drinking down the wrath of God for all the sins of all the people that will ever trust in him. And it starts to settle into him pretty heavy. And he doesn't want to do it. And he's not excited about doing it. And he wants any way out. And do you remember his prayer? It's pretty famous. Father, if there be any other way, please let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but thine. Do you see the humility? I don't want to do this. I am not excited about doing this. Do you see the honesty? If there's any other way out, I want to take that way out. But do you see the submission? Not my will, but that. He didn't grumble. He didn't complain. He didn't try to fake it till he made it. He was honest about his weakness. He was honest about his struggles. He was honest about being overwhelmed and stressed. And yet, he said, but Father, if this is what you choose to be best for me, I'll do it. And guys, if you keep that picture in mind, Is God going to call you to do some hard and sacrificial things in your life as a Christian to grow in the sanctification program? Absolutely He is. Not going to be fun. Not always going to be enjoyable. But if you can have that attitude that Christ had of humility, of honesty, and submission, in that moment, you will give honor to Christ because you're living a life like Him. And guys, here ought to be the greatest encouragement for all of us. Might God call us to suffer in small ways, in secondary ways, in lesser ways. Yes, there's no might. He will. But what I can have, this massive foundation of confidence in my soul is this. He's never going to ask me to suffer in the major way. Because Christ already took all that suffering of hell for me. And so whatever tiny suffering He calls me to suffer for Him pales in comparison to the massive suffering that he already took for me to pay the price for all my sins. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for myself. Lord, I pray for every student here, everyone listening. Grow us up, Lord. 
Help us understand more of You and Your mind and Your Word and the way that You work. But Lord, don't let us have just a mere academic understanding. Lord, I pray that there would be a change of heart, a desire to want to obey, and and a motive to obey, and power to obey. And we would have this right attitude where there's a joyful surrender. Expose us to ourselves, God. Where we grumble, where we complain, where we doubt, where we fear, where we're sinful, when we're selfish and stubborn, whatever it may be. Give us the gift of repentance. Help us all grow more and more to conform to Christ, to please and honor Christ, and then to hold forth the word of Christ so that others might know him as well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.